Welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work. Why is buy-in necessary and how to achieve it? On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. Making change work. Why is buy-in necessary and how to achieve it? The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this episode, Sharon Drew Morgan, developer of Buying Facilitation, shares with us her insights on the difficulty in effectively implementing business change. In this, the fifth in a series of change management podcasts, we explore the role of buy-in to change, its importance, and how to get it. So now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Sharon Drew Morgan, New York Times best-selling author and developer of a change management model based on buy-in that she's written about in her latest book, Dirty Little Secrets. Sharon Drew is the visionary thought leader behind Buying Facilitation, a decision facilitation model that focuses on helping buyers and those who would be impacted by the accompanying change manage their internal, unconscious, and behind-the-scenes issues that must be addressed before they purchase anything or buy in to the requested change. She has served many well-known companies, including KPMG, Unisys, IBM, Wachovia, and Bose. Sharon Drew, welcome back to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Hi, Nathan. Great to be back with you. This is episode five of six of our Making Change Work series, yeah. and I'm thrilled to be talking with you this evening. And this is a really big topic. It is. Uh, just to remind our listeners, we define change management as being about buy-in. We see it as being all about getting the people, the systems, to buy in to the requested change. And so in this anxiously awaited podcast episode, we are going to talk very specifically about what buy-in is and how to achieve it. And, and one of the things I'd like to suggest to the listeners, in our earlier podcasts, we talked about resistance, we talked about systems, and we talked about some of the words that I'm going to be using today. And I, I might stop for just a, a brief second along the way and, and define some things for those people that are just joining us for the first time. But if they want to hear more in depth, they should go back to earlier podcasts. That's right. And in fact, they can find all of the preceding four episodes on the Strategy Driven website, and they're all under our change management topic, but it, it would probably be very good for them to review those. Cause we I have, think so. <laughs> yeah, 
because I know we've we've put a lot of thought into the series, and it's really a series that builds on each other. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So Sharon Drew, to start out with this evening, would you define buy-in in terms of the change management process for us? Buy-in is where the people and policies agree to change. That's where everyone, everything gets together, um, whether it's the, the, the people individually, the people together in a group, um, the people who are defining process strategy, the people who are creating new rules. And there's an agreement amongst everything and everybody that there's a willingness to do something different to make something new happen. So because systems are made of interdependent bits, if only one part agrees to change, then you're creating disruption in the rest of the system. When there's buy-in, it's all the systemic elements and the interdependent parts that are colluding and agreeing to change. So it's not just one piece, but it's everything that touches the proposed change to agree to do whatever it has to do to reach the new um, proposed thinking, the new proposed initiative, the new proposed uh, training model, whatever it is. But it's everything works in tandem together to accompany and, and um, to agree to change. Now, Sharon Drew, I think our listeners are probably wondering how, and maybe even in particular, when buy-in actually occurs. <laughs> um, there's two parts to that. Uh, does it? Um, we can talk about how it occurs, the way change management is being done now, or how it should happen. The way change management is being approached now, mm-hmm. there's an external leader who's suggesting that an idea um, or initiative um, enter the system and happen something happen differently. So I want you and your team to begin doing customer service like this. And here are the new rules, and here is the new marketing material, uh, et cetera. So it's being driven from outside. Or I bring you aside as my senior manager and say, yo, Nathan, we're going to be doing this new initiative, and I want you to make sure everyone is happy about it. So I can either drive from the top down or from the middle out, but Change has been historically approached from the outside in. And the assumption is that if I tell you what to do because I'm the leader, because I'm the boss, and and what I'm saying is relatively rational, that you're just supposed to do it. And it right. does not take into account your unconscious beliefs, your ego issues around what your job has been. Your issues around change or how you see yourself uh, in the spectrum of other people in your department or 
how your workload will shift or how your clients will be getting something different. It doesn't take into account your personal idiosyncratic behind-the-scenes unconscious issues that you have to address, and it assumes you're going to do what you're told. Of course we know that there's massive, massive fallout and sabotaging that happens as a result, and the number that I've read is five to one. For every dollar that's spent on any sort of change management, five dollars are spent cleaning up the mess. Wow. So you've got that kind of change management approach that operates from the outside, and buy-in is a happenstance. Buy-in doesn't really fully happen because there's always somebody left behind. There's always someone that acts out later on. And that is considered to be a casualty. I know that Chris Argerus has done dozens of books about managing resistance. In fact, when you look up the term change management anywhere, you get hundreds of books about managing resistance. Mm -hmm. But of course, the field itself and that particular model is creating the resistance. There is a way that you can start with the buy-in first, that you can get the people and parts and, and the initiatives and um, rules to agree to change and then welcome the specifics of the change because it becomes part of the buy-in agreement. So I'm doing pull rather than push, and I'm starting with the buy-in rather than the change request. We talked about people resisting change. It seems to me that in our market environment that so rapidly evolves today, change is just a way of life. And any company that wants to be successful has to be in a state of constant change. And then by inference, that the success of the employees is based on their willingness to continue to change. That being the case, why do so many people not buy in? I have a perfect uh, story for this. I met with a prospect this morning, and he and I have been talking about um, bringing buying facilitation into his company as a new sales model. Um, he's eager for it. He wants it. Um, he's gotten some buy-in from some of the people. And he's got a uh, – he's in a company with massive change going on all the time. It's one of the top – new tech companies and one of the up-and-coming companies in the Fortune 500, one of the fastest-moving tech companies in the country, if not mm -hmm. the world. So they're not even on an annual budget. They're on a quarterly budget. Wow. <laughs> so there's constant change going on, and they pride themselves on being able to change. So I'm wondering now, as I'm speaking with him, why there's this foot-dragging and we're delaying and delaying this this buying facilitation training, and I keep sending him these lists of facilitative questions because he'll say to me, we have a meeting with the CEO, we have a meeting with our new investors, and I know I'm not part of that team, so I send him 
facilitative questions that I know that they need to be asking, like how will we know when it's time to invest in training at this point uh, with our investors? How do we get our investors to agree to, to, to training right now? Uh, what kind of buy-in do we need from them? These are not questions that I can be there to ask at the board meetings and so forth, and they're not questions that my buying facilitation model per se addresses, but I can use the model to help him make a, a new decision to do something different. So I said to him this morning, how are you liking the questions? Because I would think they'd be helping you move things. He was frustrated. Frustrated things are moving fast, fast enough. And I said, so how are my questions being used to help everyone make these decisions? He said, yes. oh, he said, I haven't shown anybody else. I said, really, what do you do with them? And he said, well, I read them over four or five times, and they're really terrific, and then I take notes. And then during our meetings, I bring up a couple of your points. So I said, so, you're, so the people don't know they're from me, correct? So they think these ideas are from you, which on a personal level, I don't mind, because if he's my client and he gets to look good, that's terrific. The right. problem is that he's not using the model in a way that will help the team make a decision. So they're not being used in the way they're meant. Mm -hmm. So I said, do you realize that if you had been using these questions, we would have been finished with the training already? And he said, and he's a really nice, smart guy, and he said, I guess my ego got in the way. He said, I wanted to be seen as being smart and on top of things, and I don't really even know. I mean, I haven't trained the model. I mean, I haven't trained him yet. So he doesn't even right. know what these facilitative questions are. And he said, I guess I didn't understand the import of these questions, and I didn't understand how important it was for those guys to realize that you were supporting us, that you mm -hmm. were really part of the team, and I should have stepped back a little bit to bring you forward to make them realize what an important part of our team you are, which you have become, but they don't know it. Right. So I said, so what would you need to know or believe differently to be willing to, to make me that person to help us move forward? He said, I guess I would need to know that everyone else on the team is willing to take as much risk as you're asking me to take. He said, the reality is we're all talking about changing and we're talking about moving, but there's not a lot of activity because nobody wants to move off of where they are. Okay. And so we are talking around the change and we're making small little changes, but I haven't changed my behavior. I haven't changed my job. I haven't changed my daily activities. And he said, what I do, he said, I can spend four or five hours a day just on email alone. And then mm -hmm. I have meetings. And he said, I can justify the fact that I have no time to do anything different. He said, I can justify that. He said, and now that I'm looking at it, I am maintaining my status quo because it's easier. And I'm afraid to take a risk to be seen as a leader because what if it fails? Right. So this is the situation that a lot of people are in, that they do, it's a risk. It's a right. risk. Change right. is a risk. So when you're using this decision facilitation model I developed, 
you could actually teach people, which he and I didn't sat with today, and I actually made him pay me as a consultant. I said, no more of these questions. Now you're going to pay me for these. And he said, well, I guess by now I, yeah, I deserve that. Okay. <laughs> so it was funny. It was cute. And I said, so how would you need to be thinking differently in order to see yourself as a leader? And what would you need to know about yourself and your job and your colleagues to be willing to risk failure for the growth of the company? So I'm teaching him how to buy in to his own personal change because in this instance, until he does that, he's not going to be able to help the company change. And it all gets back down to not buying in because of the perceived personal risk. That's right, and this, especially yeah. in this particular case, but in a lot of cases. Right. And Sharon Drew, you've talked about already the traditional change management model. So I want to switch over now and talk about achieving buy-in, as you and I have talked about, and as you've talked about, of course, in your book. How can a leader get someone who is not wanting to buy in, who is actively resisting, to not only buy in, but I want them to buy in with great enthusiasm using your method. And not only with great enthusiasm, but we can make sure that they have a leadership role. Yes. Because we want everyone to be a leader, even if they're janitors, even if they're uh, receptionists. We want Mm -hmm. everyone to be a leader. Because otherwise, they're a follower. And if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So you want everyone to be part of the solution. When when the change management model is from outside in and pushes, demands change, of course, because it's a system, you will get resistance because, of course, again, that's what systems do. They have homeostasis and they push back. Mm -hmm. But if I can give up my vision of what the details look like okay. from my proposed change, and I can maintain the structure of the outcome at a criteria level, okay. then I can have change happen from the inside out. So if I said to you, <clears throat> Nathan, we're going to be doing a new customer service program, and I want you to start working with the technology. I want that changed. I want there to be um, uh, better relationships with buyers. I want you to make sure all of your team starts working on this. I want your team to put together some new rules. And then i tell you what the rules are. I'm pushing from the outside, and I'm going to get pushback. Right. But imagine if I met with all of you and I said, I'm thinking about enhancing our customer service outreach to our clients. Why don't you all spend the week doing some brainstorming and talking over lunch, and everybody come back with 10 different ideas that you come up with yourself, and you can convince me maybe that you can give me eight. That's fine. And let's see where that takes us, and let's see what you come up with, and then let's see what the next steps are. Mm -hmm. So I have you from the very beginning become the process itself so that the ideas are coming from you. 
Will that look like what I want it to look like? No. Will it do what I want it to do? Yes, because I'll create the laws. I'll create the rules that you have to operate in, but I won't manage the behavior. I'll manage the structure, but not the behavior. And you're also talking about change management that starts before the project even starts. That's right. Because the project well, we, hasn't even been defined yet. That's right, because I'm going to have the people design the project themselves. Right. I see that as something that is really wrong with the traditional change management approach in that change management is a part of the project. And, and so by definition, we don't start change management until after the project starts. So we don't give people that chance to buy in ahead of the project, and therefore it becomes a, a dictation to them. So what, what is stopping us from starting the change management before the project starts and incorporating the buy-in with the project? You know, I think in some respects it goes back to what your client referred to earlier as ego. We get to be senior managers, and we decide we're running the show, and we need to make the decisions. And we don't want to be inclusive. And we forget that we're all making the decisions. Right. And every single minute of every single day, our teams are the ones that act out the decisions and that they're part of it. And they have to decide every moment to act in our behalf. So why don't we make them a part of it so they can act on their own behalf and own it? Let's see, we, we have a choice between having control of the structure or control of the content. You can't have control of both. Right. So if I have a room in an empty house, and I give you $5,000, and I say, buy me furniture, what are the two things you need to know? You need to know the size of the room mm -hmm. and the function of the room. Right. Because without the size and without the functionality, it doesn't matter what I like, because I can't get a 12-foot couch in an 8-foot room. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you can define the boundaries then you don't have control of the content. But if you just define the content, you lose control of the boundaries. You can't do both. I know in sales, we've always had control of the content about the solution, and we've had no knowledge whatsoever of what's going on underneath in the change management area that the buyer is going through offline. So we've given up the control of the structure and maintained the control of the content. When I teach buying facilitation, I teach people how to maintain control of the structure and let the other person have control of the content. Do you know where the control is? The control that we have is only with the structure. That's right. The only yeah. control anybody ever has is with the structure. Hmm? So if you say to your employees, we're going to create a change management system, I'm sorry, a customer service system that's different than what we have now. Here's what I need. Number one, it has to maintain the integrity uh, of the company 
and the mission statement of the company and the values of the company. Number two, it has to truly, truly, truly serve the customer. It has to reach out to the customer. It has to make sure that the customer is served in the same way all the way through the company. Number three, we have to make sure that it's, that it's uh, collaborative. So we create some way that we can have a continuous dialogue that goes back and forth, not just one way. So you can create that structure, and within that, let the people create the content, and they buy into what they created. Will it look like what you wanted? No. Will it do what you wanted to do? Yes. Will it do it better? It will do it better because the people will come up with more ideas than you ever had, and they will each take a leadership role. They'll be creative, and they'll be bought in. So one of the big problems is that leaders, so-called leaders, they don't understand that by by keeping control of the content, of the details, that they're giving up the bigger picture. And they get adamant about these details, and they don't let the people inside make the decisions that they need to make to be brought in. Now, Sharon Drew, I'm going to ask a question that I think I've got to ask because I think our listeners would want it to be asked, but I think I already know the answer. (laughs) Is, Is there ever a time when it would be appropriate for a leader to dictate a change without seeking buy-in? No. Okay. Now, now I, I, I would assume that in some instances, like a bankruptcy or something, where you've got legal issues that have to be handled and you don't have choices, that right. might be one of those things. So like... Uh, I was working for a company in the uh, early 80s, and apparently, when I was a stockbroker, and apparently they went bankrupt or something. And I came to work one day, and the guys with the guns were, this is a true story, the guys with the guns were standing in front of our doors, and there was nothing we could do. And there was no way to get our books, you know, our client books. Um, I don't think I ever got them. But so that was dictated to me. Mm hmm. So I think with legal issues, with issues of personal harm, that someone's being hurt or harmed or whatever, I, I suppose at the extremes right. there might be situations. But for people who are looking to manage change, manage a project where there's buy-in, it, it's, really, it's really possible to get the buy-in first. We just never thought of it that way. That's right. And for those that think that, oh, we're in such a hurry, we don't have time to get the buy-in. Well, it takes longer the other that, way. I was going to say that's right. Then I hope they have time to do it twice <laughs> because that's what's going to end up happening is they're going to not get it right the first time. They're going to have to do it again. So it'll be, right. take longer and be more expensive. Right. Yeah. Well, Sharon Drew, we've talked a bit about wanting change from various stakeholders. We focused a lot, I think, on the employees that we would be having involved with the whatever it is that we're changing, whether it's a process, maybe it's a computer system or, or a, a policy or, or such. When should we start seeking buy-in from other stakeholders, whether maybe they're executives or maybe they're customers or 
folks that are going to provide us financing or, or what have you? I like to put together all the people that are going to in any way touch the solution. And okay. very often when I start working with my prospects, they can think of three or four people that they want to make sure they have involved. And by the time I get through with our first conversation, they realize there's 11. So they didn't realize that the head of training has to be involved early on because somewhere down the road they're going to be responsible. Or we have to make sure that the tech guys have the time because if the project or the implementation is going to take two years, are they sitting there waiting for us to show up with the change and they have nothing to do with a two-year blank calendar? I don't think so. So do you have to bring in some outsourced support? So those people who are going to be outsourced have to become part of. Mm -hmm. Whoever is going to touch the final solution has to be a part of it, and that takes some creative thinking right there. It does. Up and down, up and down, up and down. The uh, In this new uh, job I hopefully will be doing soon with my, with my new prospect, um, there was a thought that somebody was going to be moving over to a different role um, in the sales area, um, and he wasn't when we started, and I made my prospect bring him in, and lo and behold, two weeks ago, he was named... Uh, an international sales manager person, and he wasn't when we started. So okay. it's, it's necessary to bring in all the people who are going to be touched and touch the solution. Now, Sharon Drew, we're talking about, I think, some unique either skill sets or maybe it's personality traits or qualities. We, we've talked about ego getting in the way, and I think of the opposite of ego is a bit of humility, a bit of openness. What are the types of skills or traits that a person needs to be able to implement this type of buy-in approach? And is there some way a person can work on developing that within him or herself? I'm going to make it really, 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 really simple. Okay. Have you ever heard of beginner's mind? I haven't. Beginner's mind is a Buddhist precept, concept, okay. that says that every moment is new. Okay. So how do you enter every situation with curiosity, awe, and wonder? Okay. And just go, huh, I wonder how that's going to turn out. And forget that you have a history of things not turning out. Forget that you have a history with that team that you really can't stand and, and, and hate them all. And Because once you bring your bias in, we talked about bias, I think, in one of the uh, sessions, didn't we? Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. We had a whole session about bias. We did. Um, once you bring your bias in, you're cooked. So how do you become an observer to the situation rather than being personally involved. So what I teach clients to do, I've developed this choice model where I teach people how to move back and forth between being on the ceiling and looking down and being inside your own self and just so so let me do a little example with you. Okay. If you're having to have a picture in your mind's eye of having dinner with your spouse or a good friend. 
Yes. So there's just two of you at a table, okay? So just mm-hmm. make a picture in your mind's eye of having dinner with one other person. If you're at the ceiling looking down and see two people, come down to the table and sit across from the person and look over. If you're starting off just seeing the other person, bring yourself up to the ceiling so that you see the two of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, can you do that? I can do that. Okay. Where do you have more options from? From which viewpoint? From the ceiling. That's right. So I call that the observer position. Because when you're sitting at the table, you can only see half of what's going on. You can't see the whole thing. Right. You think you know, but it's totally biased. When you're at the ceiling, you have more options than kill or murder. (laughs) You've got (laughs) more options. All right. Most people are sitting at the table and just see the other person and think of everything through their own bias. And it's necessary for people to get up on the ceiling, see the broad range of of options, and start with beginner's mind. I have a portion of my new book, Dirty Little Secrets, that talks about this um, and the importance. Because when when you're in a forest and just in front of one tree, you see a leaf. When you're on the mountaintop, you can see the whole forest and see that there's a fire somewhere that you can't see when you're looking at the leaf. So the main and biggest skill is, number one, enter every moment with beginner's mind, and number two, be able to move between self and observer so you have the full range of choices. Now, Sharon Drew, if I want to take that one step further, so I'm a leader within an organization, and I want to make sure that my peers and maybe the managers who work for me approach change management from this buy-in perspective. They have to hire me to teach them, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I was being fresh. Do it again. (laughs) Well, what do they need to do to implement this programmatically so it's implemented repetitively or at least consistently in our organization? I suspect they're going to have to get buy-in from the board level to be willing and able to have that sort of flexibility with initiatives. Okay. Because very often the board wants to know what it's going to look like, what it's going to sound like, when it's going to happen, what you're going to do, and there's all these phenomenal charts and graphs and and they have all these flow charts and you've seen them Nathan have Oh you? I have seen them and you've I seen have them. seen boards get very intrusive on minor we're talking like a percent or two deviation on things and and have to have reapprovals given before projects go on So you would need to get the buy-in first from the board I was doing work um, and I'll name the company because uh, we talked about this story very often with California Closets. And I eventually trained their trainers, and they trained buying facilitation worldwide to all their franchises. And the first meeting I had with the CEO, his name was Anthony at the time, and I said, you're going to get pushback from everybody. And he said, how do we learn how to work with that pushback so it doesn't throw us off? So the first training, first pilot program I did was with the whole executive team and board. So they knew what we were doing. They knew what it sounded, acted, tasted like. Mm -hmm. Then they put me in the field 
with one of the franchises, and I went around with three other people during the day, and I created all kinds of havoc, not on purpose because I was just asking questions that I didn't know I wasn't supposed to ask, that there were those hidden questions that people assume and that aren't true and like, you keep talking, you keep talking to her about, about the design and the design and the design. How will she know to choose you over someone else? Because yeah. my design is so good, he said. And then he immediately called Anthony and said, who's this witch here? So he kept getting calls from people saying, who is this person? And I really wasn't doing anything, but I was disrupting the system. So mm -hmm. by the time I got back at the end of the day, um, the whole board was called in for this meeting. And Anthony said, all right then, you did it. I said, oh, cool, what did I do? He said, you created major disruption. And I said, already? <laughs> And he said, he said it was amazing to watch. He said, but we, we already know how to manage this. And, and they already, because we had, we had put in place a series of things that we would do if there was disruption. There, there was, um, if there was, uh, resistance and, and, um, chaos. There's a, there's a, a little coda to this. I did a, um, a keynote for them at their annual conference and there were, I don't know, 700,000 people there. And so I told them about buying facilitation. This was before the, the thing was implemented for everybody. And afterwards, Anthony came over and he said, I heard that you said this and this and this and this. I said, ah, I, no, I didn't. He said, well, I heard you said this. No, no, I didn't say that. Really, I didn't say that. What I didn't know was that he was sitting in the back, and I can't see. There were a lot of people there I couldn't see. And then yeah. he said, I was there. I knew that you didn't say any of those things. So what's going on that you're getting that kind of resistance? And how can we manage it from the top to make sure people buy in before you start? Otherwise, no one's going to want the training. So we knew what the issues were before we started, and we got the board to agree to manage that in a way that created buy-in throughout. Okay. Oh, that is great. Well, Sharon Drew, I think, and, and I think this is a great segue, I want to uh, end here because I think we're starting to get into what we're going to talk about in what will be our finale to our Making Change Work podcast series. And that is, we're going to pull it all together and we're going to talk about a radical approach to change management, and that is real leadership. So before we delve any more into real leadership, I'm just going to remind everybody to tune into the finale because cool. we're going to dedicate ourselves to exercising real leadership. So I want to thank you once again for sharing your insights on change management and this time for the role of buy-in in the change management process and how to go about getting it. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion once again, and I'm looking forward to joining you on the finale of our Making Change Work podcast series. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. 
I would like to personally thank Sharon Drew Morgan for being with us today and sharing her insights on the role of buy-in to the change management process and how to get it. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Sharon Drew Morgan at www.buyingfacilitation.com. Until next time, so long.